All right, tonight we go back to our discussion on law and gospel. However, we're going to we're going to try to accomplish a couple of things after uh, you know what what we what are we doing? Okay, all right. So what we're going to try to do is take the the subject we dealt with this morning. I try to advance it just a little bit and then see if we can maybe finish up at least thesis number five. Because obviously the subject we, uh, we got to this morning, just because of its controversial nature, I know that, that it's going to lead to lots of questions and discussions, especially for people online. So let's try to, we'll try to remind ourselves of what we discovered, what we kind of covered, and then we'll, uh, we'll see if we can advance this. All right. So in the, in the book... God's yes, God's no, and God's yes. On thesis number five, what scripture is mentioned that sparked everything? Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31 which is a promise of a new covenant. All right? Now, we, we had already dealt with this years ago, and we spent a considerable amount of time, which was, which was a very good thing that we did, is that we established that when we read Jeremiah 31, we have to acknowledge that the new covenant is made with Israel. That's what it says. There's no way to get around it. And that the specific promises of that covenant are directed specifically to Israel. Things like land being regathered and some of those very specific things. So we, we, so when we look at anything in the Old Testament that has new test, that has new covenant language, we immediately go, okay, that's part of the new covenant. That's for Israel. And so it will be fulfilled for it with Israel in some way, shape, or form. Here's what we know. Has Israel been regathered and given the land? No. All right. So therefore, there's aspects of the new covenant that haven't been fulfilled. When we add to the new covenant promises like, I'm going to write my law on their hearts and I will be their God, I will be their God and they will be my people and they will obey me and they will have a new heart and I'm going to remove the, the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh and all of those other kinds of la- that language. Immediately we know clearly that hasn't happened in Israel yet. Right? So if it hasn't happened in Israel yet, then we're like, okay. What we argue is that we can't go take that language and say, but it's happened to us. Okay, and because now we may be connected to the new covenant in some way, but we 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 know this. Uh, well, we we know that primarily it focuses on Israel. I'm not going to try to rehash everything. So when we started looking at this, we ended up with a big question, and the question was what? Is the heart and salvation when we become saved is the heart our depraved heart, a heart that's desperately wicked. Right? And deceitful above all things. Is that heart replaced? Is that heart transformed? Is that heart changed in a complete way in salvation? Right? Because Jeremiah 17 says that the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Is that deceitful heart replaced with what some may refer to as a regenerated heart or a spirit-filled heart or whatever words they want to use? It's a salvation heart and now it's no longer depraved. It's no longer deceitful above all things. It's completely transformed. 99.9% of all Christianity says it has been changed. And to even hint that it hasn't leads you to be considered a heretic 
right from the start. But what would be, what would be the basic outcome if everyone who became a believer now has a completely new heart that's no longer desperately wicked and no longer deceitful above all things. It's been completely transformed. What would be the practical implications of that truth? You, you, you would have to argue that not only is sinlessness possible, it would be probable. What would be the, what would be the strange thing? Sin. We wouldn't be able to understand it because if your heart's completely free and from, from sin, then that means there's no internal thing causing you to sin. Like, what, what's the thing? What, what is it? Now, isn't it weird how Christians will say we have a completely new heart, but then at the same time say that we can't be perfect and at the same time say that our flesh still desires. It's like this weird, like, how do you say it in this sermon and not realize you're saying something contradicting your previous sermon? You've got to work your theology out so that it's consistent. But Christians will preach, you have a brand new heart. You're a new creature. Old is completely gone. However, you can't be perfect. However, you still will be tempted to sin. However, you will still sin. And it's like nobody raises their hand and go, this is the most inconsistent thing I've ever heard in my life. Sadly, it's lost people going, that makes no sense. And Christians are like, it makes perfect sense. What's wrong with you? I, I don't know. I, 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 have a, I have a problem here. So that's the question. And the conclusion we came to is, and, and I, I, don't, I almost want to mute the mic, we do not get a new heart. When we're saved, our heart remains the same. Depraved, desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. We will get a heart. When we are transformed in glorification, there'll be no more what? Sin. We will be like whom? Christ. Then we will. I believe Israel. This will be fulfilled somehow in Israel in some future setting and the best place we can put it is a possible millennial kingdom where he is their God, he is their people, and he is literally in the midst of them and they've been regathered and they have the land. That's the only thing that makes sense. You can't say that that happens in the church because what does land have to do with it? What does regathering have to do with it? And what do you mean that we have a new heart so that now we obey him and nobody has to teach us? And we're unified. Clearly, 2,000 years, we're not unified. And I, it appears that we still need a lot of people teaching us because we don't understand anything. Right? I mean, we don't even agree on anything. So... That, that's the only thing we can come to, come to the conclusion with. So, here are the questions, two questions, that I have for everyone tonight. These are simple. We can move through these relatively quick. All right? Ready? Number one. Does anyone currently present in this room, and if anyone is listening online, does anyone have any questions in regards to this position that we have put forth since it's so absolutely radically different than anything we can find. I, I was going to come here tonight and continue to go through all the articles I have on this subject where everyone says that we're wrong. But we saw that the first article we looked at, there was no point in looking at it because 
the scriptures they gave to prove their point didn't even come close to proving their point. It was the most, it was the most ridiculous. They, the one scripture you thought they would use, they didn't use. They just found a couple of verses that said heart and said see, and it didn't prove it. But what, would anyone have any questions in regards to this, trying to understand it in your own mind, what we're trying to say or not trying to say, just so that I can offer clarification? Because probably if you have a question, there's people online who have the same question. So if I answer it now, I don't have to answer it later. Nobody has a question. That means I, maybe, possibly, possibly, we've worked so hard on a lot of this that we haven't. We, everyone here is kind of was already kind of knowing that's the direction we were going. So my question is in Romans two twenty nine when it talks about the circumcision. Uh huh. Galatians, I believe. I think it's Galatians. Can someone look up a circum- circumcision of the heart and see if it's Galatians? Yeah, Romans 2.29, that's the one she mentioned, but I think it's also in Galatians. I could be wrong. Or maybe Colossians. Yeah. Something else in Paul. Okay, hang on, hang on before you ask. I just want to make sure we have the other one, just in case we need it. It's either, it's Paul. Circumcision of the heart, or just put circumcision to look for something that refers to circumcision of the heart. All Romans? <clears throat> Just Romans, okay. And how many places in Romans? Romans 2? Just the one? Oh, I thought there was a circumcision of the heart mentioned by Paul somewhere else. If it's only mentioned in one place, then that, that makes it a whole lot easier because... Because... Uh, Maybe it's only one place. Right, you see here, Romans 2.29, you see here. Okay, Colossians 2.11. Okay, Colossians 2.11. It doesn't say the heart, but okay, there's a circumcision. Okay, all right. I think it's referencing the heart, Paul. All right. Okay, so go ahead with the question. Okay, well, first, first thing, it actually destroys the argument that we have a new heart because we wouldn't need circumcision of the heart if we had a new heart. So I would say that whatever we understand that to mean, right, is that, that there is an ongoing work on the heart. What we, we, saw, we talked about it this morning. In some way, shape, or form, we have to at least acknowledge, and I don't know how it works, because there's, clear, there's so many philosophical problems with it, right? Because if God is doing any work in the heart, then why wouldn't he just completely fix the heart so that we would stop sinning? But he doesn't do that. So then you have to infer that God obviously wants sin in our life because if he didn't want sin in our life, there wouldn't be sin in our life. This is the never-ending philosophical problem of Christianity. But I will have to agree. This is what we would have to agree with. Supposedly, according to Scripture, we have the Holy Spirit, right? And according to that, the Holy Spirit produces fruit in our life, Right? And that fruit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Now, we know that clearly none of those things are ever perfect in our life. We talked about that this morning. They're corrupted. So, but somehow that's working. And some of the scriptures that the one article provided, supposedly God is working putting love in our heart, right, which would, would be a fruit of the Spirit. This idea of peace, this idea that we cry, Abba, Father, 
and then that there's somehow a circumcision of the heart. I think that, I think the point is the heart is wicked and there's an ongoing struggle with that heart that, that amounts to trying to circumcise the heart, trying to fight against the heart, trying to uh, mortify uh, the, the heart, all of those kinds of things. That the heart is still wicked and we're fighting against it with the scripture and God is doing some kind of work in it or upon it. But I don't know what that means. There's no way to quantify it. There's no way to qualify it. There's no way to explain it. Because clearly, what, what can we say about the work on the heart? By no means is it complete. By no, it's not even near 99% perfect. It's not even, it's, it's a million miles away from perfect. So I don't know how we quantify it or qualify it, right? Because then this turns into, well, God is doing this in your heart. So if, if you're saved and you'll do A, B, C, D, E, but that, that never works. That always leads to a different kind of problem, does it not? So I don't know exactly what we do with that. And, and the, 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 the phrase in Romans 2.29, what's the context there? Right. A lot of that deals with the difference between Jew and Gentile, right? A lot of it is dealing with that. Um, so we know... Right, and I think, I think the point that, I think the point Paul's trying to make over and over and over is that just mere, just mere obedience or attempting to obey the law was not sufficient. It required something, a salvation. So if we refer to circumcision of the heart as salvation, we go from an unbelieving heart to a believing heart. Which is a Yeah, yeah, not, 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 it's a change of the heart in the sense that now we believe, now we receive, now we accept. But obviously it doesn't do all this other stuff that everyone claims, because if it did, there would be what? Yes, yeah, so, well, it would be, it would be, yeah, we'd, there'd be sinlessness. I think, I think that's a good question, but that's the best I, best I can come up with. Look, there's no way to, I mean, all, this is what we're stuck with. And, and this is, I feel like some way, and I, and I said this this morning, this whole subject reminds me of dealing with charismatics. They can go to this verse and this verse saying, well, see, see, God will prosper you. God will bless you. God will heal you. God will protect you. There will be signs and wonders. You're supposed to cast out demons in my name. You're supposed, well, and they've got all the scriptures, right? Well, my thing is, yeah, you've got some scriptures, but here's what I know. Please look at the world. Okay, look at yourself, right? I mean, they're, they're on television saying, God will heal when they wear a pair of glasses, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, die of cancer, and you're like, well, it didn't work, right? So immediately that tells me that sometimes these promises, there's, a, there's a, one, a positional fulfillment, and in many cases, the ultimate practical fulfillment is in glorification, it's not here. It's just not here. I do believe. I do believe healing is guaranteed in the atonement, one hundred percent. But it's there. It's not here. So, whatever God is doing in my heart, I, look, I'll, I'll take whatever He will do. I'll take it. But I can't quantify it 
as I get a completely brand new heart and I'm a completely new creature and the old is completely gone because that would be calling for an eradication of the old nature which would then demand spiritual perfection. I'm just saying you just got to take it to its logical conclusion. So I I don't know if that's a... I I don't have a good answer, the bottom line is, but that's the best I can come up with. Anybody else have a different question? Yeah, exactly, right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or my, or any of us. Yeah, I heard no of any, right. And obviously nobody was in the, in the, in the entire 2,000 years of church history because as soon as we start reading about the people, we're like, wait, what? what did they do? Wait, they did what? They did what? They did what? They did what? I mean, you know, it's like the only thing you can do is get saved on a Monday and kill yourself Monday night before you could start sinning. And then someone would say, well, you killed yourself. That was a sin. So you went to hell anyway, right? You know, like you couldn't win. Okay? But you literally need to die like 15 seconds after your salvation to have any hope. Uh, because, because, I mean, it, it, that's how it works. So yeah, that, that's the real issue here. All right, now. Oh yeah, I mean. Yeah, and, everyone, and even if we remove the adultery, he was a polygamist. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, even if we remove the murder, and I'm just saying, he was a, a walking polygamist, so he was committing adultery all the time. Okay, he had multiple wives for crying out loud. Right. Okay. So if he, if marriage is only between one, then the other women he was committing adultery with. Okay. Right. Okay. I mean, like, how do you get around that? Okay. And then all the other things, the numbering of the people, the all the other things that he did. You know, at times, yeah, we could go through all the other things that he did. So, um, once again, you see imperfection. You see imperfection. You see imperfection in every church in the New Testament. Church Corinth, Church Galatia, all of the churches had serious issues. Paul was, and and again, I I so wish Paul would have said that uh, the things I want to do and enlist all the things I don't do. Because everyone just acts like, oh, it was a little small thing. It's little small things. Wasn't anything serious because if he did anything serious, he'd have been disqualified. Wouldn't it have been wonderful to see what that list is? Because I bet you people would be like, people would have been all over social media at that time. You know what the Apostle Paul did? Piece of garbage, piece of, piece of trash, right? Because everybody would have been shocked. But we just minimize it too. It couldn't have been anything serious. Couldn't have been anything serious. But then at the end of that, he says, with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. That's a pretty serious <laughs> confession. And then at the end, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. But everybody's like, see, he's just so humble. Well, if he's saying he's the chief of sinners, but he really isn't doing anything wrong, then that's fake humility, and then that's called dishonesty, so therefore, he's committing a sin. Either he, there was some, and they're like, no, he was just so sensitive to sin that he, 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 he was, he snapped at one, someone one time and he's like, I'm the chief of sinners. Or maybe he really, there was some real sin in his life. But I mean, we, we could never say that, right? We can never say, it's just so weird the way Christians act in regards to these subjects. Okay, so, second question. Right. First, I just that's just and anyone online, if they have questions about this, I'm more than willing to try to entertain them. I just want to know there's a limit to what I can answer here. I just know this. There's no way we have the new heart that everyone claims that we do. I know that. All right. Second question. This understanding 
that we all possess a depraved and deceitful heart. What is the impact of this on the proper distinction between law and gospel? How important is this understanding to the concept of law and gospel? Because remember, this is all attached to this study, right? So now we've got to circle back around and, and insert it back into this subject, right? It, felt, it almost probably felt like we left the subject, but we never did. I'm try, I want us to see if you can figure out how important is this concept to a proper, distinguish, distinguish, a, proper, a proper way of distinguishing between law and gospel. Okay, it's key. Why is it key? Thank you. If we get a new heart, I can obey the law. I don't even need Jesus. And I I will argue that the evangelical world has almost established that Jesus came just to make us able to keep the law. That's all Jesus did. He forgave us for our past failure. Now you can do it, right? He enabled us. He infused us. Basically, it's just a form of Catholicism. And now you can do it. And if you don't do it, you're never saved and you're done. You're finished. You're trash. You're garbage. We want nothing to do with you. Get out. And, well, I know, but it's amazing how everyone acts like they have. And how do they, how do they convince themselves that they've done it? Because it's only, it only applies to what kind of sins? Big ones. Big ones. All, any sexual sin, that's the end of the world. That's the, that's the end of the world. Okay, that's, that's death immediately, right? Okay, abortion, that's the end of the world, right? Okay, that's the end of the world. You're finished, you're done. Okay, there's just homosexuality, the end. That's the end. I mean, that, I mean it's over, it's over. So, so uh, there's just a, cu- there's a couple. And it's amazing that anytime anyone commits a big sin in some public way, you just go on, just online, read the news articles. The Christians commenting, it's just brutal. Piece of garbage. Never trusted them in the first place. I knew they were no good. I knew from the first time I heard their sermons there was something wrong with it. And everyone acts, and it's just no grace, no mercy, judge, condemn, destroy, and all doing it as if they are perfect. Of course, they're doing it with anonymous names, so you can't look them up online to find out exactly what they've been up to, because it probably, if you could, you know, probably if you, it would be, it would be, it would be fun if you could just like type on, on their name and all of their, their history showed up because then you could just send it to them. And then almost in my mind, I picture them, you know, with a woman caught in adultery, just all of a sudden dropping their mouse pads, right? Just dropping, <laughs> dropping their computers, right? And not throwing any more rocks. Because you know they're committing sin. You know it. Because we all commit sin. It may not be the same sin. It may not be the same kind of sin, but sin is occurring. This, to me, is the whole reason we need law and gospel distinction. The gospel saves us. It doesn't make us able to obey. 
It's a weird gospel that comes along and says, hey, aren't you glad that you're saved by uh, grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone? And you're like, oh, that's wonderful. But what they mean by that is, aren't you glad God makes you now able to keep the law? Aren't you glad now you can obey the law? Now, aren't you glad you can prove you're saved by your ability? That's not good news. It's not good news because what do you find in your Christian life after about 30 minutes of being saved? You're still doing it. So then you begin to question, well, wait a minute, if I was given the ability and I keep doing it, then something is wrong. And uh, our first thought is at that time, we don't think there's anything wrong with the Bible. We don't think there's anything wrong with God. We think there's something wrong with us. So either one, you have to just kind of like, you know, it it feels like Luther. Everybody's like, man, you're taking this so serious. You're just being, you're being super sensitive over this. You're taking this too far, Luther. Come on, don't get so caught up in this. (laughs) And so, right, exactly. Is this, is the, does the Bible tell us what sin is or doesn't it? And if it does, immediately we realize we don't keep it. But the average Christian walks around telling everyone, I'm a new creature in Christ. The old is gone. I have a new heart and I can obey the law. And then they act arrogant about it. And then you're like, you, how can you convince yourself of that? How can you convince yourself? There's, Christianity does something to people's brains. I don't know what happens. It's like we can't even see. Charismatics can't see reality. Christians can't see reality because 99% of Christians will say, no, you have a brand new heart. The old is completely gone. It's been transformed. The stony heart is gone. You have a heart of flesh. Now you will obey God and you will walk in his commandments. And you're like, what do you mean by that? But then they'll turn around and 15 seconds later and say, well, you won't keep all of it. And nobody's perfect. Are you insane? Like, like how, how can Christians not hear? How do we not hear ourselves? Right, well, well then they'll say, we're, we, we all have the same spirit, so therefore he's leading us into truth, which then, of course, then why don't we have the same? It's just never ending. It, I just want you to see, this is essential to the whole discussion. God saves the people by imputing righteousness, not infusing righteousness. And he saves us, and in that salvation, he does not transform our heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, because we still have a heart of stone that still is what? That still is what? Depraved. The sin is still there. Right. Exactly. I mean, I mean, wherever you wherever you find Christians, what do you find? Sin. Always, wherever, wherever, wherever. Why is that? Why is that? Because the sinful nature, it what? Remain. It's not eradicated. It's not eradicated. Do I wish it was eradicated? Do I plead? I wish. Oh, I wish. I wish. I wish. Just make it go away. But it doesn't. Now, I don't understand why it doesn't. But, but you know what? That's the least of my problems. The, le- the least of my philosophical problems is that, well, why doesn't he make it go away from me? It's why did it show up in the first place, okay? Right? Hey, I'm going to create a world where sin is going to be, and I'm not going to do anything to stop it. 
right? It, it makes no sense. All right, so we, we've looked at that. Now, we're going to go back to this paragraph where they mention Jeremiah 31. All right, so we've, we've looked at three questions today. Just make sure we understand. Number one, in salvation, does the, the depraved heart, is it replaced? What, what, what happens to the, the depraved heart? And it remains. We know it remains. Number two, do we just have any questions in regards to how does this work? We had some questions about circumcision of the heart. Nobody else had any other questions. And then the third question is the significance of this to law and gospel. And it is absolutely essential because it demonstrates why? That we are saved by the gospel, but we are not made able to keep the law. We're just as unable to keep the law. And I know that puts us in opposition with every church in America. But I don't. I mean, people can argue with me all day, but congratulations, you know, congratulations. I'm glad that you found the way to be perfect. But people, man, people think that they're better than they are. That's all I know. Okay, or here we go. Now, here's the paragraph. We're going to finish this thesis. Maybe. That's a lot of paragraphs. All right, here we go. All right. All right. My, I, I'm always optimistic. All right, here we go. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. God is going to make a new covenant. This covenant is not to be a legal covenant like the one which he established with Israel on Mount Sinai. The Messiah will not say, you must be people of such and such character. Your manner of living must be after this or that fashion. You must do such and such works. No such doctrine will be introduced by the Messiah. He writes the law. Now, this is where it gets. Now, all of that, I'm, I'm pretty good with that, that the covenant is not based off what we do. Okay. It's based off what God does. I agree with that. But this is where it gets. Uh, because he's going to take it from Israel and he's going to make it ours. So this is where we're going to disagree. Listen to what he says. All right. Um, where is it? No, uh, he says, he writes, speaking of, of, of the Messiah, speaking of Christ, he writes the law directly into the heart, I believe clearly of Israel, right? So that a person living under him is a law unto himself. He is not coerced by a force from without, but urged from within. Now, if that's all you mean by that, that there's a new urging from within, okay, I got no problem with that, right? Because the things I want to do, don't you? So if we just if we reduce it to just an urging, the only problem is the Ezekiel language definitely makes it more than an urging, right? It's a completely new heart. It's a completely different heart. But all right, let's let's see where, where he can, goes with this. For I will forgive their iniquity; I will remember their sin no more. These words state the reason for the preceding statement. There are a, they are a summary of the gospel of Christ: forgiveness of sin by the free grace of God for the sake of Jesus Christ. Anyone, therefore, imagining that Christ is a new lawgiver has brought us new laws, cancels the entire Christian religion. I agree. Jesus Christ is not a new lawgiver giving Christians new law. He came to expound the old law so that we could understand it, and that law condemns us. He came to save us from the law. All right? Now, I got no problem if we claim, I'll make sure we make this clear, that whatever work, because we all acknowledge God, we, that the Bible seems to indicate he's doing something to our hearts. Whatever it is, 
I got no problem saying we have new urging or a new desire inside of us. I got no problem with that. There is a new desire, right? Anyone who's saved desires to follow God. But what, we, what do we find? Fail. Do I find I got all these things I want to do? Yes. What do I end up usually doing? Things I don't want to do. And do I have all these things I don't want to do? And what do I end up doing? Doing them. So we, we can agree that that desire is there. And I do believe that's some work that God does inside of us. We, it's not because of us. It's because God has done something in us. We can all agree to that much. All right? So that may make some people feel a little bit better. Okay, maybe. I, but, all right. It goes on to say, the Christian religion says the following. You are a lost and condemned sinner. You cannot be your own savior. Everyone say amen to that. I I like that, right? You are a lost and condemned sinner. You cannot be your own savior. But do not despair on that account. There is one who has acquired salvation for you. Christ has opened the portals of heaven to you and says to you, come for all the things are ready. Come to the marriage of the lamb. This is the reason, this is the reason too, why Christ says, I heal the sick, not those who are well. I came to seek and to save the lost. I have come to call, I I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Right? Because if you, if you won't see your sin, and if you don't, won't acknowledge your sickness, there can be no healing or no salvation. You've got to see your sin. That's why the law is there, to show you that you're sick, to show you that you're a sinner. Everywhere we see the Lord Jesus surrounded by sinners and behind him stand lurking the Pharisees. Sinners hungering and thirsting stand round about him. Through the divine, though the divine majesty shines forth from him, they are not afraid to approach him. They have confidence in him. The Pharisees utter the bitter reproach, this man receives sinners and eats with them. The Lord hears the remark. He confirms the truth of their statement, which by them was meant as a reproach by continuing the censored action as if he wished to say, yes, I want sinners about me. And then proceeds to prove this by telling the parable of the lost sheep. The shepherd picks up the lost sheep, no matter how torn and bruised it is. He places it on his shoulder and rejoicing, carries it to the sheepfold. The Lord explains his conduct uh, the Lord explains his conduct also by the parable of the lost piece of silver. The woman seeks her lost coin throughout the house searching for it even in the dirt. When she found it she calls her friends saying rejoice with me for I found the piece which I had lost. Lastly the Lord adds the parable of the prodigal son. Practically the Lord says there you have my doctrine. I came to seek and to save the lost. And in all those cases, he does it all, right? He does it all. He does the saving. He does the seeking. He does, he does it all. He does the work. If you take a survey of the entire life of Jesus, you behold him going about, not like a proud philosopher, not like a moralist, surrounded by champions of virtuous endeavor, whom he teaches how to attain the highest degree of philosophic perfection. No, he goes about seeking lost sinners and does not hesitate to tell the proud Pharisees that harlots and publicans will enter the kingdom of heaven rather than them. 
Thus, he shows us quite plainly what his gospel really is. Modern evangelicals don't want to believe that harlots and publicans get in before the Pharisees, even though we say amen to that when a sermon is preached. We don't really believe that. Because we'll say, well, no, no, no. If they're a publican, no, 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 no. They used to be a publican. They used to be, because they will stop being that when they get saved. They will no longer be like that. And they start, and when Christians start talking, they start sounding like whom? The Pharisees. Because we can't imagine that some of those really sinful people could get into heaven. No, because we believe, Je- this, is, this is the thing. We don't believe Jesus came to save the lost. We believe Jesus came to clean up the lost so that they will live differently. That's the gospel in the modern church. Jesus didn't come to save the sinner. He came to wash them, clean them up, put on new clothes, so they could look different, talk different, and sound different. Because if they don't look different, talk different, and sound different, then they were not saved. Jesus just came to give us more morality. Now, they will say, no, 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 we don't believe that. But that's exactly what the gospel turns into. How do you know you're saved? Because you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do this, you do this, you don't do this. It always becomes works, 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 action, 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 action. Which would mean the gospel is about infusing you with a righteousness, not imputing a righteousness. I don't know how on one hand we want to say we believe in an imputed righteousness and then turn back around and say, however, you'll stop doing this, you'll do this, and you'll do this. Well, an imputed righteousness doesn't cause that to happen. That would require an infused righteousness, which we've been talking about over and over and over and over and over again in this. And various places and their confessions, the papist or the popes, explain that many laws were uttered by Christ, which Moses knew nothing. For instance, the law to love our enemies, the law not to seek private revenge, the law not to demand back what has been taken from us. All these matters the popes declare to be new laws. Now remember, what what are they trying to establish? This is very, very, very important. Remember the Catholic system, right? So let's make sure everybody remembers On one hand, if you ask a Catholic, are we saved by works? They say, no. What they mean by that is we're not saved by what works? The Old Testament law. However, that doesn't mean that we're not saved by keeping the new law given to us by Christ, who is the new Moses. So you don't have to keep all of that Old Testament law. Just the new one. Which I think I would rather go back to the old one. Because the new one can't keep. But on one hand, I admire the Catholic. Because they they at least admit it. And then secondly, they at least try to provide you remedy knowing how much you're going to fall short of it. And what are all the remedies? All the sacraments, right? Okay, including the, the, the confession, last rites, where you have sins forgiven right before you die. All these wonderful things, right? All these wonderful things so you can get sins forgiven. And then you, you, get, uh, you can earn indulgences, right? You have the whole confessional and penance situation. You can earn indulgences. And then not only that, you can go to purgatory to get everything burned off. 
At least they create a system. It's the, it's the, it's the non-Catholic. It's the, I, I will say, Protestants are better Catholics than Catholics. Because we say, but we're so deceptive. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. But you got to do this, 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 this. And if you don't, you prove you were never saved. Hey, but you're saved by grace. Am I saved by an imputed righteousness? Of course you're saved by an imputed righteousness. How do you know you have the imputed righteousness? By your practical righteousness. So I prove imputed by practical when literally the very concept of imputed goes against the practical, <laughs> right? Uh, it's just, I, I, I don't get it. Right, so, but so they were, that, that's why they, they say, hey, Christ is the new lawgiver, all right? This is what they would say. All, that, all these matters, the popes declare to be new laws. This is wrong, for even Moses said, you shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart and with all your soul. And with all your might. Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18. Now Christ did not throw out this law of Moses, but rather, but neither did he publish any new laws. He opened up the spiritual meaning of the law. Accordingly, he says in Matthew 5.17, Think not that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. What does he say he came to do? Look at Matthew 5, 17. I want everyone to see this. If you don't get, any script, if you don't get anything to tonight, make sure you get this. Five seventeen. What does he say? He fulfilled all of them. And in Christ, guess what? You have fulfilled all of them. So if someone comes to Bobby and says, hey, Bobby, if you're truly saved, you're going to do this, 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 and this. Bobby can just dogmatically look at them and say, I do all of that. Well, I mean, he could say in Christ, but I mean, just to confuse the person, he can say, I do all of that because the person he's talking to is going to be like, well, so do I. Even though both of them don't, the person judging you according to MacArthur's test, well, MacArthur judges everyone according to that test, right? And if MacArthur was even halfway honest, he would fail that test. Jonathan Edwards would fail that test. But I mean, if when anyone wants to step to me, like, okay. They say, so you're saying you don't have to be changed? You're saying you don't, the, that the Christian life, you won't be godly? No, go ahead. Tell me, tell me that I got to do that. Because I do it better than you. I do it perfectly. Don't bring your test to me. I can pass your test any day of the week. And they're like looking at you like, what are you talking about? Because in Christ, I'm perfect. He came to fulfill it. If he fulfilled it, listen, here's the question. Are everybody listening to this? If Christ fulfilled the law, how can I be judged for not fulfilling it? How can I judge Bobby's salvation for his not fulfilling the law when Christ already fulfilled it?
Now, does that excuse Bobby not doing it? I'm not saying it. Everyone thinks immediately when I say that, like, so you're saying Bobby can do anything? You're saying, hey, oh, no. How about you worry? First of all, what I want to say is, how about you worry about your stinking self and stop pointing your finger at us? Because we, while you're worried about what we say we can do, I guarantee you I can find some dirt on you. All I just need to do is hire a private investigator, right? Or ask someone who lives, right? But, but yeah, I mean, just ask your kids. I mean, like sooner or later, it's going to come out. You're a sinner. And like, but, 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 but I'm not saying you have to be perfect, which then starts the whole watering it down until it means nothing. It's just, it's just a ridiculous argument. But the point is, if Jesus fulfilled it, I can't judge Bobby according to it because it's already been fulfilled. So people get nervous, but in a roundabout way, Bobby is saved by what Christ did. I can't judge his salvation based off what he does. And that makes people nervous. Mm-hmm. In verse 19, it says, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these, these commandments and shall teach men to do so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom, and then whosoever does them will be called the greatest. But they're both in, in the kingdom. That's a good point. That's a good point. All right. That's a good point. <laughs> both, are in the, both are in the kingdom, whether they keep them or don't keep them. That, that, but people would say you're misinterpreting that. But the whole Sermon on the Mount, just remember, the Sermon on, what's the requirement for the Sermon on the Mount? Because Jesus says, uh, uh, to, perfection. Does anybody meet for per- perfection? No. But who did fulfill it? Christ. Are we, should we not care about what the Sermon on the Mount says? Oh, we should care. Should we pursue it? Yeah. But I guarantee you, no, nobody has fulfilled it. I mean, remember, I, at the Bible, for the Bible Institute that I was a part of in Lawton, Oklahoma, I mean, basically he was like, you just go to the Sermon on the Mount where it talks about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and just rip it out of your, just rip it out of your Bible. Just rip it. He's like, there's no point. You can't apply it to the church. It won't work. Well, and I, I, to this day, I was like, that's the most insane thing I've ever heard in my life. He's like Mr. Independent, Fundamental, Conservative, like, and, all, and he's like, just, you, can't, you can't do anything with it. It made no sense to me. Now it makes perfect sense. You know why we can't do anything with it? Because everybody in the church is a sinner. And, and now I understand, here's the thing. It's law and we will never fulfill it. So we shouldn't, and in that sense, we shouldn't rip it out of the Bible. What we should realize is when we read the Sermon on the Mount, what should be the conclusion by the time we get to chapter 7? We've all failed it. Just the Beatitudes. We fall short in the Beatitudes. Blessed is the pure in heart. Blessed is he who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Give me a break. Everybody thinks that they fulfill that. Give me a break. Nobody fulfills that. Okay? All right? That, that concludes thesis number five. What time is it? All right. There's no point in starting the next one. There's no point. I mean, there's no point. That, that gives us a good place to start, right? Okay, so today's psychological dam- damage that we've caused people on the internet, okay? <laughs> I'm going to have to start putting more in it. I'm going to do a voiceover at the beginning of all my messages. The following sermon contains psychologically scarring material. Uh, please uh, have your therapist on standby before you listen, 
remove all small children and sensitive people. Okay, right? I mean, I, I really need that because, I mean, this, I mean, people are going to hear this today and they're going to be like, I don't know what that was. I've never heard anything like it in my life. But it's not because I'm trying to throw something out. It's just because I'm trying to deal with the reality. The reality is I know that we have a sinful nature. And I'm not going to sit here and try to draw up a diagram of people and go, okay, let me see how this works. All right, so when you become saved, you have a new heart. Boom, it's perfectly good. It's transformed. It's, it's wonderful. It's a, it's a heart of flesh. It's going to be godly. It's going to walk in, in, in the laws of God. It's, it's perfect. But, 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 but over here, there's, there, there's the sinful nature. So you have the sinful, you have the godly heart, but the sinful nature. How do you, how do you draw that distinction? I mean, because wouldn't the heart encompass everything? So some people, like, if you want to, and I don't even know what that means. So the heart is perfectly good, but the nature? So what's the nature? So the, like, what's the diagram am I making here, right? I know this. Guess what? A- everything inside of me is still what? Sinful. It's still corrupted by sin. And I believe that that promise of a new heart in, 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 in the Old Testament is a reference to the new covenant that will be fulfilled in Israel that Israel hasn't even experienced yet. So you say, well, what's, what's the issue with the heart or the nature of the, of, the, uh, sin, of, the, of the Christian? We still have a sinful nature, right? We still have the old man. And we're constantly trying to put it off and fighting against it, mortifying it, Right? We're trying to fight against it, trying to cut away sin, but it's never going to be perfect. And if you, if you try to claim that you now have the supernatural power to say yes to God and no to sin, well, then you're claiming the power to be perfect. You can't say that and then say you can't be perfect because then that's not power. That limits the power. All right? Now, I know that puts us against everyone. I know it does. I, and I don't know what to say. I, w- I wish I could say, well, man, this is what you need. I, I don't know what to say. I would say don't argue with anybody. Just say, fine. Um, congratulations. You have a new heart. You're a new creature. You have the power to say yes to God. Just congratulations. Just congratulate them. Say, obviously, I'm not that. And if that means I'm not saved, well, then you can think that I'm not saved. And then you just let life take its natural course. Because guess what you'll see in those people if you have any relationship with them? You're going, to say, you're, going to say, you're going to see sin, and you're going to see sin, and you're going to see sin, and you're going to see sin. And if they're even halfway remotely sensitive to it, just a little bit, I don't know when, I don't know how long it will take, but at some point, they're going to come to you defeated, discouraged, and broken. But after all of this time, they keep sinning, and they keep stumbling, and they keep struggling. And then finally, when they reach that point, you can give them the good news and say, well, now are you ready to receive and accept the gospel as it is and not what you have made it? Because you've turned it into a gospel of works when, it, when in reality, you've destroyed it. So let me give you the gospel of grace. All you got to do is just, if they're even halfway remotely sensitive to sin, but many Christians just live their lives convinced that they do everything right. Because we, we, we almost, 
We almost, a lot of people mock the people or almost condemn the people who were so critical of Luther. But we, we would do the same thing with someone today, right? Who was like, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. Oh, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? I'm a sinner, I'm a, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. And you know, please forgive me, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. You know, and they keep coming to the altar. They keep calling the pastor. I keep sinning. I keep, and you'd be like, get over yourself. Maybe, maybe the problem is they don't get over their self and they are real with their self. Maybe it's all the rest of us are not sensitive to sin. But I think if you're halfway remotely sensitive to sin, I mean, just read your Bible. Every, anytime you read your Bible, what do you realize? That I don't live up to it. I mean, it's, it's, every page is, is I'm called with what? I'm either called into question by someone's good example or I see someone's bad example. I'm like, ooh, I'm a lot like that. Right? Or I see a command and I'm like, I don't do that. Or I see a prohibition, I'm like, man, I did that last night. Right? And then you're kind of like, what, what, what am I supposed to do? What, what am I supposed to do? Well, we, we, we ran into this in our study of fear this week. Right? We, we talked about a, a, a wife is supposed to fear her husband, reverence, respect, and awe. Right? And a slave is supposed to reverence, respect, and awe their master. We, don't, we can't even put, wrap our minds around. That seems insane. Now, we know everyone falls short of those. We're all supposed to reverence and respect and awe God. Right? Just looking at just what we're supposed to fear the right way, we immediately all realize that we fall short. That's just, that's one thing. Because fear, fear shows up in these different relationships. We looked at them. Child to parent, wife to husband, slave to master, uh, Christians to God, or people to God. And we realize, so this is a reverence. This is a respect. This is an awe. That's what the, the, the word means. We're like, well, then who, who pulls that off? Immediately, we all have to admit what? No one. Well, so then guess what? Wait a minute. If I have a new heart and I have the supernatural ability to say yes to God and no to sin, then I should fear God and, fear, and, and show fear in all these relationships in a perfect way. And no one ever does. How do, I don't understand how Christians never realize that. Like, oh, everything I do, I fall short of, but, some, but I tell everyone that I, I, I have some kind of power now to do it. It just makes no sense. And so then they come back and say, no, 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 no. We're not saying that you'll do it perfectly. Well, then they just water it down to the point that you're not saying anything then. What are you even saying? Well, nobody's going to do it perfectly. It's just, it's just what? It's just what? I'll pretend that I'm doing it as good as you are? You pretend. I'm not going to pretend, okay? Because you're trash and I'm trash, and we both know we're trash. So there's no point in pretending. All right, so, all right, that gets us to thesis number six, Right? All right, that's where we'll stop. All right, Lord God, we come before you this evening. There's nothing I can say, Lord, except we acknowledge our sinfulness and we are grateful that we are saved by the gospel and by grace because anything else, well, we would not be saved. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,